You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latinoamérica in Foco. América Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. How does anti-Mexican rhetoric in the U.S. election threaten national security? I spoke with a former congressman in Mexico City who's working to set the record straight about how close ties are between the two countries, as well as why Donald Trump might not have such an easy time delivering on that border wall. This is Karen Zissis with ASU Online, and I'm here with Agustin Barrios Gomez. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Karen. And you're the president of the Mexico Image Foundation. That's right, yes. I was termed out of Congress in September. Uh-huh. And um, so I was a federal congressman for um, a, uh, a borough in Mexico City, which is called uh, Miguel Hidalgo. And I was very active in the Foreign Affairs Committee, specifically on the, um, the Interparliamentary Working Group, which is the, the group of legislators on our side and on the U.S. House of Representatives. So we would get together one year, it would be in Mexico City, the other year it would be in D.C., since you termed out in September, mm-hmm. you, you, since then you've become the president of the Mexico Image Foundation, which yeah. in, in, in Spanish is Fundación Imagen México. Right, the I Fundación think. Imagen de México, and I'm um, also very active with the Asociación de Empresarios Mexicanos, which is an organization of um, uh, Mexican expatriates. There's like 3,600 members uh, with 22 chapters around the U.S. So we do have a chapter in Mexico City because Mexico City ends up being a very important focus for everything that goes on in the continent in general. It's a little bit like New York. Mm-hmm. Great. And can you explain a little bit exactly what uh, the Mexico Image Foundation is? Sure. So um, I've been realizing over my many, many years after having graduated from Georgetown um, and actually having been in D.C. during the, 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 the time that, that the NAFTA negotiations were going on uh, in 1993, so I've been paying a lot of attention to this and, and paying a lot of attention to the narrative with respect to Mexico. So I grew up as the son of an ambassador, a Mexican ambassador to Canada, Mexican ambassador to Switzerland, consul general to New York City. That was my father. And so that basically meant that I was hypersensitive to Mexico's image abroad. And actually one thing that I learned over the years also is Mexico's image at home. Uh, so we've got Simon Anholt, for example. Simon Anholt was the guy who created the concept of nation branding. And Simon has worked with 52 countries, and he worked extensively with Mexico. And he said, he, he, he said, Mexico is the country where I saw the largest difference between the reality and the perception. So you've got this middle-income power uh, with you know the 11th or the 13th largest economy, and depending on how you, you measure it, an economy almost the size of Russia's. Um, a, 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 a power within the trading environment, one of the um, a, a truly integrated into the, into the global economy, um, 120 million people, you know, all of these statistics. And then suddenly, you know, and then you actually get into the perception and you get this perception of this banana republic that's always messing things up and all of that. And now what I believe is that Mexico's, uh, Mexico's poor image is now an issue of national security for North America because now you're getting a lot of, a lot of political falsehoods that use all of these uh, uh, caricatures of what Mexico is 
to turn, in this case, the American public against, against Mexico. And Mexicans, having not made the transition themselves, in other words, we, we ourselves have, don't have a proper narrative, mm -hmm. right? So you get a lot of people who still have this idea from the 1950s, back when Mexico was actually a relatively small rural country and not a not a not 120 million urban country, that that idea that Mexico was ultra centralized still permeates the popular belief about what Mexico is. And in reality, that's no longer true. I, I want to talk a little bit more about that about the disparity between uh, reality and, and imagined, both outside of the country and in. But first. Let's go back to what you were just talking about, how it's become uh, an issue of national security in the past year. When I hear you say that, I instantly think of what's happening in the U.S. elections and a lot of uh, negative language and, and negative discussion about Mexico. Can you talk a little bit about that and why you think it's a matter of national security in particular? Okay, first of all, just to make the point clear, because I don't think it's been made enough, it is unacceptable what has been said. I mean, uh, from any from any perspective, uh, and I, I try to put this in in context for Americans. Imagine, imagine if one of one of two of our main presidential candidates were saying, you know, Americans are a bunch of child molesters, and you know, we're going to round up the million Americans that live here because we do have them, and we are actually the number one destination by far for American expatriates. So we're just going to round them up like dogs, and we're going to you know basically throw them over the border. So. I I use that because I think we've we've become too accustomed as if in as if this in any way was acceptable and it's not it really just is not um, and so and to be clear we're talking about language that Donald Trump has used yeah, of course, about Mexico of course just, of course, of course. You know, yeah. yeah leveraging on on the ignorance and 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 this concept of um, you know you're miserable and there's a reason why you're miserable it's the other quote unquote. One of the things that's been astonishing about this entire process in, in the United States is that, I mean, we all knew that there was this underlying um, racism and, and, and xenophobia that was, that was there. I mean, and that's everywhere. Every country has it. And suddenly you have this large population, 10% of the U.S. population, 10% of the citizen population of the United States is of Mexican descent. And then you have, um, and then you have of course, the, uh, the immigrants of which uh, Mexican immigrants number about 11 to 12 million, out of which half are, uh, are undocumented. But 80% of the Mexican presence, and just in general in the United States, of the 35 million Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, 80% are either U.S. citizens, which is by far the majority, or, uh, or, or uh, legal residents. Uh, so it's not the Mexican experience in the United States is not an undocumented experience. Of course, if you're you know if you're stoking up hatred and 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 if you're trying to leverage that for your own political gain, then that's not something you're going to say. You're going to pretend that the entire undocumented population of 12 million in the United States is Mexican, which is not true. And you're going to pretend that all Mexicans are are somehow undocumented scum, right? And if you denigrate Mexico enough, then you're not putting the the you, then you you are debasing one of the most fundamental, if the most important relationship that the United States has. I mean, no other country in the world has as much of a daily impact on the lives of Americans as, 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 as Mexico does. From the most cross-border in the world to the $540 billion worth of trade that goes on uh, between the two countries, 330 ports of entry. I mean, it's astonishing the amount of integration between the two countries. And of course, the governments know 
the people who need to know, they know. But if you're ignorant of that, so you become sort of a bull in the china shop, you have no idea what you're talking about. And so you're, you know, you start, you start doing things to damage that relationship and to be very specific and to, and to be very blunt. U.S. national security and prosperity do directly depend on Mexican cooperation and stability. So it turns out that Mexico has the strictest visa policies, among the strictest visa policies in the world. And that's because of the United States. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's unbelievable. The only time, the, the only documented case of a, uh, of a terrorist trying to cro cross into the continental United States was in, 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 terms of, uh, in terms of a land border was through Canada, not through Mexico. And so, like I told this guy who was, came with a delegation with a, the mayor of San Antonio the other day who was harping once and again on border security. I'm like, dude, you should be kissing the ground you're standing on. 350 million border crossings a year. Even statistically, it's amazing how little happens on our border. Our border is safe. And, and my former colleague, uh, Congressman Beto O'Rourke, uh, who's from El Paso, you know, he, he, he says it very, very clearly. El Paso, which is right across from Juarez, um, El Paso is the safest city of its size in the United States, number one. And he says, we are the safest city, not in spite of the border, but because of the border. And so, but you keep, you know, you keep humiliating people and there will be a backlash. And it's extremely dangerous because these things, these things escalate very quickly. So suddenly, you know, we're no longer on, on such good speaking terms. Suddenly, we're not cooperating at the level that we're cooperating. And that is extremely dangerous for both countries. Extremely. And, and you know, Donald Trump constantly talks about the wall that he's, he, he would build. Yeah, he's writing it to the, I mean, he's writing it to the White House. Yeah, it's, it's constant discussion, right? He's not the only one who's talked about this idea of the wall, of course, and we've got to build a wall in this. The, 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 well, there's a physical, I mean, mm -hmm. just for, for people who are listening and who are, paying, who are paying a little bit of attention. I mean, let's repeat. It is the most crossed border in the world, and there are 330 ports of entry along the, the 2,000 miles, right? And what they did, ever since the Clinton administration, actually, they, uh, they used the, the surplus uh, metal from, from the first Gulf War um, to start fencing off that part of, and it started in Tijuana mm -hmm. and San Isidro and all of that. And so, um, which actually broke circularity. So these two countries were born together, New England, New Spain, and actually New France, which was Canada. These countries were born together. The US dollar sign is actually the Mexican peso sign. Uh, a third of the United States actually was once Mexican territory. And so there, there was a lot of movement, and there has traditionally been hundreds of years since we were born as countries. Um, uh, there was movement of people, right? And so people from Mexico used to come up, do the work that, that they wanted to do, that they needed to do, and then come back. That was called circularity. When the physical barriers started coming up during the, during the Clinton administration, um, that circularity was cut off. It became much more difficult and much more expensive to cross the border without documents. And so what ended up happening is that it, it, what, it created an incentive for these men to bring up their families. Cutting off circularity actually increased significantly the, the Mexican presence in the United States. So all of the parts of the, of the border that are easily fenced off have already been fenced off. The parts that have, have not been fenced off are actually, most of it is the river. So the U.S.-Mexico border, according to the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848, 
establishes that the border is in the middle of the river, and that and that the treaty also establishes that that river has to main, has to stay navigable, because of course it's a life lifeblood of that entire area. The Rio Grande, uh, on our side known as the Rio Bravo, is actually a very important waterway for the, for all of the communities on the Texas and on the Mexican side of the border, and it's massive. I mean, it's 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 a good it's almost half the border if I remember correctly. It's a good thousand miles, so. Like the mayor of Laredo, Pete Sainz, once told me, he's like, so we're, we're going to build a wall. It has to be built on dry land. It has to be built on U.S. territory. So what does that mean? So you're going to fence off my river? I mean, we live off that river. You're going to give back the Rio Grande to Mexico? I mean, it's just so stupid, right? So most of, most of what's not there. Oh, and also another particularity with respect to Texas is that the land that is, the, the, that is on the U.S. side, immediately adjacent to the river, most of that land is private land. And so um, there's, there's been m huge issues when the U.S. government has tried to, has tried to build, um, uh, you know, has tried to build a physical infrastructure on that, on, on that, on that property because it's private property. So it's going to be a, a very complicated idea if someone were, want, were to want to undertake it. And let's say if they could get through all of these challenges that we're talking about, dry land, rivers, private property, all of, all of those struggles. Endangered species. <laughs> Endangered species. Yeah, the whole, the whole environmental, <laughs> environmental thing is huge as well. Um, let's say that there, there, a wall were built. What would the effect be? To be frank, the wall, the wall in general is actually a, a big red herring. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's really silly. It's downright stupid if you look at it from, from the Texas standpoint. But at the end of the day, that's not what's most important. I mean, like I said, most of most of what most of the border has been has been has already has a physical barrier, and so what we're all and because we're already seeing net net migration south, such such that there used to be six point seven million, according to Pew his, uh, Pew research, six point seven million Mexican undocumented Mexicans in the United States. Now there's five point three. And so this is in the last something like seven years, if I remember correctly. So you've lost more than a million. You've, you've, you, more than a million net has come back to Mexico. And actually, in, in, if, if Mexico were to, were, were, were to grow above 5%, you would see the, the entire undocumented immigration problem would disappear. I mean, it's, it's really, we're at that, we're at that point yeah, where... People are deciding to come back, and right now the the one thing is the rule. The one thing that's holding back Mexico from going from you know two and a half to three percent growth to five to seven percent growth is is the extent is the rule of law, and the Mexican government actually taking that role seriously. So what you're seeing now is yes, a government that is certainly not paying anywhere near enough attention to to, to issues of corruption. But at the same time, it doesn't. It's not of benefit to anybody to you know to to disqualify the government um, and, and, and not to have a serious discussion. And to go back to the point you made, the, the economic point you made, uh, one thing that I'm seeing that we're seeing discussed more and more is the fact that as people get concerned um, about a Trump victory or, or it becomes it seems to become a, a possibility that it's been weakening the peso. So if we're saying that we need to get 5% growth to resolve the this issue, 
what's going to happen economically in, term, in, in terms of this relationship and in terms of, of what it's going to mean for the Trump currency. Trump is an, um, an, a potentially apocalyptic black swan event for, for, for the economy of North America. Um, if, we see, if we see candidate Trump um, uh, with good poll numbers in August, we could very well see a massive economic crisis as the, uh, I mean, the idea, it is a black swan event. I mean, the, the, the possibility of having an antagonist in the White House to the entire North American system, to the entire world system, to be perfectly frank. First, of course, you're going to have a, 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 an economic crisis in Mexico as, as country risk goes through the roof. The peso, you know, you've already got banks saying that, uh, that, that, that one play to to protect against uh, a Trump presidency is to short the peso, which is catastrophic, of course. Um, and that's actually one way to guarantee that there will be a massive influx. I mean, if, if that there will be massive influx of Mexicans into the United States, I, there's no wall in the world that could that could stop that sort of movement. Um, I mean, if you destabilize Mexico, you would be in for the biggest refugee crisis in modern history, right? I mean, it's 120 million people who have means. This is not a, by international standards, it's not a poor country. And it's attached to the entire American Southwest. It's five times the size of Syria. And it doesn't have a Mediterranean or a Turkey between it. So, so thinking about all of this, um, and and you talked about what are the realities? What are what's the misinformation um, that, that gets spread? How do you get the message out? How do you, you know, there's one thing to um, talk within groups to, of people who who agree who agree with the message and want to understand the message. Preaching to the choir. Preaching to the choir. How do you get beyond the choir? The one the, the one thing that I think is a low hanging fruit. You've got 14 million people, according to, according to a U.S. Chamber of Commerce study, 14 million people in the United States that have a job related to North American trade. These are people everywhere. Like I, I, was, I was invited to the, uh, to the Republican primaries in New Hampshire, right? So I brushed up on my New Hampshire. Um, it turns out that New Hampshire, which is in the middle of nowhere for, for Mexico, I mean, it's as far away as you can get. 1.3 million New Hampshireites um, sell 460 million dollars worth of goods to Mexico. It's the second most important, and it's just behind Canada. It's really the difference is not large. Canada, which actually has a border with New Hampshire, so here we are, Mexico, on the other side of North America, and yet even New Hampshire has this massive stake in the bilateral and massive economic stake in the bilateral relationship. So I think the low-hanging fruit and one of the things that we've um, ignored at our peril is making sure that the people who, are, who have a job, who have a livelihood that's directly linked to North American trade are aware of that. I couldn't believe um, candidate Clinton, Secretary Clinton, uh, when she debated Bernie Sanders in, in Michigan, Secretary Clinton did not turn around to Bernie Sanders when he was spouting off his spiel and say, you know, Bernie, there are a good quarter million Michiganders who depend on NAFTA. When you destroy NAFTA, as you obviously want to do, 
are you going to, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to face these people? Are you going to tell them, boy, you know, I think that there are going to be some really cool jobs. Just give me a minute. I'm, I, I'd like to subsidize some other jobs, these fantasy jobs that are going to suddenly arise. You take the, take the situation of Carrier. Carrier has been, you know, this poster child after, after they closed the plant saying that they were going to take, uh, that they were going to move production to Mexico. And Carrier's main um, competitor is Samsung, okay? Samsung produces in China. And so Carrier has this huge operation um, and supply chain in North America. And for them, they can still be competitive by moving, by, by moving some of their production to Mexico, right? And so by moving their production to Mexico and not China, they are actually keeping jobs in terms of suppliers within North America. So you have this villain, this cartoon villain, all of these straw men that are being created left, right, and center. You have this cartoon villain of this company. But what you don't understand is the way that supply world, global supply chains work is that if Carrier does not do this, they will cease to exist and their suppliers in North America will cease to exist and the, and the market will become Samsung's, right? So, and Samsung is a Korean company that produces in China. And by the way, out of every dollar that the U.S. imports from China, four cents are U.S. content. Out of every dollar the U.S. imports from Mexico, 40 cents is U.S. content. So who's your real partner here? What role do you think the Mexican government has in sharing this message as well? What do you think the Mexican government could do to spread the message? There has been some um, discussion, you know, Peña Nieto compared some of the Hitler rhetoric yeah. Uh, yeah. Of, the, of Trump's rhetoric to Hitler. Yeah, that's, that's um, not helpful. <laughs> so what would be helpful? The, the, the Mexican government has been too obsessed with the, the, with the political process in the United States. It's not about the political process in the United States. It's about telling the truth. The Mexican government's job is, is not to say vote for Hillary or vote for whatever. The Mexican government's job is to say Mexico is this. And it's and curiously enough, you know, they keep asking me, oh, at the, at the Mexico at the Mexico Image uh, Foundation, you're you're you know you're talking up Mexico. I'm not talking up anybody. I'm, I'm I'm telling people what it is. I'm not saying Mexico is good, bad, or regular. What I am saying is that Mexico is fundamental, and that is much more profound, because there's no value judgment in that. What I am saying is that U.S. prosperity and national security directly depend on a cooperative and stable Mexico. I, I, I did 15 interviews with some of the most conservative, quote-unquote, um, uh, radio commentators in, in New Hampshire. Everybody got it. Everybody. I actually expected some blowback. I did not get one single argument against the fact that American prosperity and national security depend directly on Mexico. So what that means is that when you, when you say it, when it's out there, people accept it because, because it's so obviously true. And so that's the Mexican government's role, to get away from this dilemma about whether they should inter intervene in the U.S. They, for, for, to begin with, they have no way to intervene. Just, I mean, let's just get that out of the way. They just need to say the truth about their country. That's their responsibility. My experience, actually, is when, when, you, when you get the information out there, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the shoe drops, you know, but people actually get it. That's sort of our... That's the gospel that we're trying to spread. Great. Um, so I want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening. For more, visit as-coa.org.